From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm really happy to welcome back to the program today our very good friend from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Richard Hill. And the topic of our conversation today concerns something that really will affect almost everyone who has a pet. Now, maybe less so if you've got, I don't know, a snake or something to that effect. But we're talking about pet food today and how to really choose a good pet food for your pet. We all love our pets and we kind of want to do right by them. And there is uh, maybe some misunderstanding is happening as it relates to pet food. So let me welcome you back to the program, Dr. Hill. Really glad to speak with you again. Hi, it's nice to be back. When we think about our pets' diets, we have maybe come a long way from the days when uh, you just went and got a big old generic bag that said dog food on it and just kind of like cut it open and let your dog have at it. People are thinking about this more in the same way that they might think about their own food that they put into their bodies, which there's nothing wrong with wanting what's best for your pet. But there may be some misunderstandings, and and some people may uh, be uh, maybe spending more than they have to. But let us kind of start at the beginning and talk about what our pets need nutritionally in the first place, because that might be a good foundation so that we can understand what we should be feeding them anyhow. That's, yeah. Well, the, there are certain nutrients which the body can't make in adequate quantities. And um, those are things like amino acids, which are the components of protein. They're um, things like certain fats, um, that um, uh, certain types of fat are required by the body because they can't make them. Uh, There's uh, vitamins and there are minerals um, that everybody has to consume. Um, And... We also need calories, and we can. We're somewhat limited, and dogs and cats are some not somewhat limited in how many calories they can consume in any one day without getting fat. And uh, likewise, if they don't eat enough, they get thin. So it's important that the diet is so-called complete and balanced. And the complete bit means that it contains all the essential nutrients in adequate uh, in, that the body needs. And the balanced means that if you eat the right amount of calories, you will get enough of those essential vitamins. And um, so the most important thing that a diet has to be is complete and balanced so that uh, the dog or cat is consuming enough of those essential nutrients. And fortunately, if you are feeding a diet which uh, conforms to AF, uh, the American Association of Feed Control Officials, um, then... You, and it says on it, currently complete and balanced, then 
that is, you should be okay in feeding that diet. So the most important thing that you have to look to, to look on the label is currently that it says complete and balanced. Now, the, the labels are going to change shortly, and it's going to say complete. And that will mean complete and balanced um, by definition. They just want to make it a little shorter on the label, if you see what I mean, so they can put extra stuff on there. Uh, I do. I do see what you mean. Now, when we so knowing then that complete and balanced is really that it means that if we fed our pets only that and water, then they would be able to have all of their nutritional needs met with just one store-bought food that we wouldn't, assuming that these animals don't need any sort of therapeutic diet, we could just give them that and they would have, like you say, the vitamins, the minerals, and the calories that they need. Uh, And where I think we as human beings kind of um, fall into... Uh, we, we get into our heads a little bit because sometimes we think of ourselves and how we wouldn't want to eat the same exact thing every day and how much we wouldn't tolerate it if every day, every day uh, we went into the kitchen and we opened a cupboard and it just said human food or whatever and that was all we had to choose from. Um, but you're saying that literally – Uh, unless our pets need a therapeutic diet for some reason, you could just open up a bag or a can of a complete and balanced pet food, and that literally would be enough to give our pets what they nutritionally need. Yes, and it's okay to give more than one food, provided they all say complete and balanced. Because if you give three diets, which are all complete and balanced, so long as the animal doesn't get fat and doesn't get thin, then the combination is going to still be complete and balanced. The time you get into trouble is if you add a treat or a supplement or some other um, type of ingredient in the, the diet, which is not complete and balanced. Um, because then, if let's say it's a treat, um, it it may contain a lot of calories, but not all the essential nutrients. Or you might give a supplement, such as a vitamin mineral supplement, and you run the risk of, because you're not giving calories, right? And there's already enough vitamins and minerals in what you're already feeding, then you may overdose on some of those vitamins and minerals. Now, some of those vitamins, the animal would just um, urinate out of the body. Um, but um, some things, you get into trouble. You know, some of the minerals, um, some of them like copper and uh, such, if you take too much of those, then they, uh, it starts to get toxic. And the same for vitamin D. A lot of, a lot of um, uh, human um, vitamins and minerals contain a lot of vitamin D because it's thought to be beneficial in, in people. And I take a lot of vitamin D myself because we've measured it in my blood. But there is, there, it may be necessary in some pets, but there is a danger that you could give too much. Let's talk about the research that goes into formulating these diets. This isn't something that was just happened upon accidentally. I mean, these pet foods 
have been kind of scientifically devised, correct? Um, I'd like to say we know more than we we know everything, but we don't. Um, uh, I was part of a government committee that tried to come up with some guidelines as to how much should be in the diet of each of the essential nutrients and whether there should be any extras added in that we um, don't, you know, some advocates, people advocate for some other things in the diet. Um, and we created a table which broadly outlines what should be in a diet. But um, sometimes there was not enough information to come up with a really strong recommendation. And therefore, there were some safety factors put in there to try and allow us to adjust what's in the diet, um, to, to give some guidance with the limited information we know. So for some nutrients, we have very good information. And some nutrients, we have less good information. And over time, we've had to, the people making diets have had to make some adjustments in how much should be included in the diet. For example, um, we didn't know really how much vitamin A was toxic in dogs and cats. And um, when we, we were sort of fairly conservative about where the upper limit should be, and uh, subsequently a study came out that uh, the, one of the pe big pet food manufacturers said, we think we can give more than that. So they did a study which showed that, in fact, the, the safe level could be moved up a lot. So it went from 12,000 to, I think, let's see, went up to about 110,000, something like that. Um, but it, we know that 500,000 units in that particular measure is is toxic. So somewhere between those two things is the range. But if we know that it's about 100,000, it's fine. Um, and so over time, we're getting more information. But um, we, we, the general... Um, we we have to interpret the data as well as we can, and that's where the the difficulty comes. People come to me and ask me to um, create a diet um, that is complete and balanced using home cooked food, just like you and I would eat. And it's tricky because we have to try and make some assumptions about the availability of not just how much is in there, but how much can be taken in. And um, if you're paying money to a, a manufacturer, then you have a number of people who are trying to, who have experience in making pet food, who are making those decisions. And that is quite expensive. And testing to make sure that everything works okay is quite expensive. But you share that cost um, among all the other people eating that diet. Whereas if you come to a nutritionist like me to, to try and do that, I have to use my expertise and estimate. And it doesn't, and then we have to have some to and fro to try and sort out what's going on. And that proves to be quite expensive. And you're, you're sort of doing that on your own individual basis. So um, there are benefits from using commercial dog food and that you're sharing the cost of that expertise and testing across a lot of people. Right. That's right. Because when we think about it, there, 
a lot of people might be thinking about, well, what would these animals be eating in the wild? But we can have maybe misunderstandings, too, about what these species like dogs and cats historically have evolved uh, to consume. And maybe you'd be the best person to talk to about this. Like, what would the diet of a cat be in the wild? What would the diet of a dog be? What have they been evolved to need? Well, the cat's probably the easier easier one to talk about. Um, It basically eats um, mice, birds, um, other rodents, like if they could catch baby rabbits or something like that. I once looked after a cat. I'm glad I didn't meet it on a bad night because it was pretty chunky and it ate pretty big rabbits and it went over walls and chased rabbits so the owner was stopping having trouble keeping him on a skinny cat because he tended to provide his own diet if you see what I mean but but essentially it's rabbits rodents um, uh, birds and reptiles um, all those things that you see cats chasing if they go outside and things like that Um, and they eat the whole animal um, and because they're eating the whole animal, they're getting all the vitamins, minerals, and all the things they need. They also get the the bones, and and uh, basically that's how they get all the vitamins and minerals they need. If they don't eat the guts and everything else, then it's not balanced. And um, we had an issue at one of the um, one of my colleagues who takes care of the um, alligators out at the alligator farm. The alligators were their teeth were falling out, and we couldn't work out. We were trying to work out why their teeth were falling out, and we found that they weren't getting enough vitamin A. And the reason they weren't getting enough vitamin A was because they were feeding a jungle rat, um, and they were but they were taking out the guts and the liver and all that sort of thing before feeding. They were just feeding the outside, none of the contents of the abdomen, and so they were on vitamin A deficiency, and their teeth were falling out, which for an alligator is not a good thing, is it really? And anyway, we we persuaded them to feed the whole animal, and they started they started to do okay, and their teeth came back. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and 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 dogs, dogs are a, a bit more, I don't know, omnivorous if that's the right word to to use. Yeah, they they have more flexibility about what they can eat, um, and it's reflected in their physiology. What we have to talk about here is that um, your body is not fixed; it realizes and their bodies realize they can't eat the same thing every single day, that there's going to be some variability. Cats are much more fixated on on being a carnivore, so they have, they've actually got less adaptability, whereas dogs um, eat, and, you know, they eat whatever comes their way, and though they are primarily chasing, if, as a wolf, they were originally tra- um, chasing um, larger animals, you know, like bison and stuff like that, um, uh, they still 
given the opportunity, would eat vegetables and other materials as they came available to them. Um, and if you look at what carnivore dogs in the wild, various canids eat in the wild, that's pretty much what they do. But they have more flexibility. And one of the things that happened as they became more domesticated is that they changed their metabolism a bit. And they actually... in change their metabolism, their genes, so that they have more copies of some of the, the um, enzymes and the transporters that they need to um, consume on, for a diet that contains more carbohydrate. So the idea that your chihuahua is a wolf is incorrect. It is that it is the, has evolved from a wolf, and so it it also because it's evolved from a wolf, it has a capacity for dealing with a more varied diet, and in addition to that, it can deal with an even more varied diet because it's evolved to live with people. Yeah, I mean, and I think that I've noticed that a dog will eat, in some cases, just about anything that you put near its mouth, whereas, you know, as someone who's been around a lot of cats, there are some things you just couldn't get a cat to eat no matter what. Uh, it's just not palatable to them. But we sometimes look at the ingredients list on, say, commercial pet food, and looking at the ingredients list at, say, a bag of dry cat food, we might not see only meat ingredients, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this is not something that a cat can consume, correct? Well, yes, that's correct. There's, we need to go back to that initial statement about what constitutes an essential nutrient, okay? Um, and one way you can get it is by grinding up a bunch of rats and mice and birds and putting them in a can. You can do it that way, but nobody's really going to want to buy a cat food that is made of ground up mice and, and things like that. So um, what we have to do is come up with a substitute. And the way that it goes on is you take some meat and you take some offal and you take some fat, and you can mix them all together to make sure that the, the, the mixture contains all the right essential ingredients. And you do that really with your own diet, um, uh, because you um, eat a little bit of meat, you eat a little bit of um, you, you, maybe some uh, fatty, some fat from some soy, soybeans, and you may eat some vegetables. And what you're doing is putting together a mixture. And because most people eat a fairly varied mixture, then they're eating a, they're trying to approach a, a complete and balanced diet. Um, and that's one of the ways that we manage, and we are omnivores, so a bit, a bit like dogs and cats, like dogs, in that we have some more flexibility in what what we eat. Um, but the bottom line is that some people, um, if you eat nothing but McDonald's, 
then you, you, you run the range. Diff- you're not getting enough vitamins and minerals that you need to, for your life. Your, so you need to eat more vegetables and other things to get all the essential vitamins and minerals you need. So how do we do that in commercial dog and cat food? You take the basic ingredients for um, providing the calories, which is protein, fat, and carbohydrate, and you mix those together. You want to then add a little fiber um, to make sure that the the bugs in the intestine are fed properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have to add some vitamins and minerals, or you have to add something like liver or something like that to try and provide the vitamins and minerals. But you need to make sure that you have the right proportion to make them complete and balanced. Yeah. And um, the, that's where people get a bit scared when they look at the recipe because um, what the pet food company may do is they sort of say, well, this mixture, we're a bit short in vitamin A, so we'll add some vitamin A. Um, but if you don't know that retinol is vitamin A, it looks like it's got a nasty chemical in it. If you you look in, something says riboflavin, on the side, then you don't think, oh, that sounds like a chemical. Well, that's vitamin B2, you know? Um, and and that's where you can get into trouble because you're looking at things which don't necessarily look as though you don't really want your animal to eat, but that's how they managed to do it. Um, and hopefully the new labels, which are due out shortly, will enable you to see that because they'll group things under vitamins and then you'll be able to you get a list of things which say these are all vitamins. Ah, that's um, a, uh, yeah. That was something that I wanted to ask you not to take a detour here, but uh, you know, looking looking at a label, if yeah, if you see that it says something that's a name, it's a word you don't recognize, and it seems to be somewhat. Uh, you assume that it's some sort of chemical, and you're not understanding that it is a source of a vitamin or a mineral. Um, you know, this is kind of unfair then to commercial uh, pet food makers, uh, and I imagine this is, holds true for some other fields of uh, of food uh, labeling as well. But if they can make a package that tells you why that particular ingredient is included there, then maybe people would feel less trepidatious about feeding it to their pets. Well, that's hopefully what the new label will look like. There's been quite a bit of work to put into this to try and make it a bit more like the human label, the label you see on human foods, so that it's a little easier for people to understand. Um, And that should happen in the next year or two. It takes a while for the companies to change over the labels, so there's going to be a, a a sort of delay in the speed with which this comes out. But um, I'm really excited about the possibility that, that people will be able to understand their their diets a little bit better. Oh, I, I hope so too. Well, Dr. Hill, this is a good place for us to take our first break. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. My guest, Dr. Richard Hill from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is here to talk to me about our pet's nutrition and really how to choose a good pet food. We'll be back with more right after this. (music) 
Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Richard Hill, and we're talking about how to choose a good pet food. And Dr. Hill, what would you say are some either mistakes that people make or maybe just some efforts that they go to that might come from a good place but ultimately don't really serve a significant benefit? Um, Well... (laughs) I think the main point I want to take the public to take home is that it's okay to feed an inexpensive dog or cat food. Um, I think that there are the pet food companies and who are selling food are very good at about demonizing certain ingredients, and sometimes there is a little bit of truth behind it, but there tends to be too much generalization, okay? And other companies emphasize certain ingredients um, uh, too much as well. So you have, on the one hand, a company that sort of says, your dog is a wolf, and therefore we have to give buffalo and things like that to it, which is not necessary not necessarily true. Um, and on the other hand, you have a company that sort of says, well, um, this, this, has got, uh, this has got a bad ingredient or it's a cooked food, therefore it needs to be raw or it it's, it's, it's a, needs to be fresh just like our own, um, our own food. And the fact remains is that there are a lot of people in this world, I know, who are struggling to keep and help ends meet. Um, and I do not want them to be feeling bad about feeding a relatively inexpensive dog food. The fact remains is, or an inexpensive cat food, the fact remains is dogs and cats are living a lot better, longer now than they did in the past. And one of the reasons probably is that they're fed a pretty good food, and most of the foods made in the United States are pretty good foods. All right? If you live in a third world country, that might be different, but um, most of the foods fed in the United States are pretty good foods. And there, you know, some old, we, the great quote is, Old Roy is a relatively inexpensive food, and dogs have lived perfectly good lives, their whole lives being fed Old Roy. Um, and if you want to spend a lot of extra money on a fresh food or um, you, you want a, something that is more like a carnivore, with, you know, it's got extra meat or something like that in there, um, then that's okay, but that's a lifestyle choice. It is not necessary for your particular pet to do that. Um, and the person you should talk to, if you are concerned, is your veterinarian. Um, because there may be special needs for your particular pet, and uh, depending on whether it's sick or whether some other circumstance. But that is what you should focus on, um, and it's quite possible that you can feed an inexpensive food without um, putting without threatening the health of your dog or cat. Yeah, and so. This it's funny you should say this because I, I I've known about this myself that someone would scoff at the idea of buying say alley cat or, or something like that a, a cat food that's just sort of off the shelf at any supermarket um, or meow mix or whatever and, and and what it sounds like is these commercially available f- foods 
you know, whether or not they're the best tasting for any particular animal, and that might be in an animal's individual preferences, they at least would have the nutrition that those animals need to be healthy. Yeah. If it says complete and balanced on the outside, yes. And if you buy it from a... I'm, I'm actually a fan of giving it for larger companies. Um, and there are two reasons for that. One is because they have a greater reputation to lose. And so they're going to be trying very hard not to lose that reputation. Um, everybody's out to make some money, if you see what I mean. So they're a, they're a corporation. They're trying to make money for their their, their the people who own the company and uh, the shareholders and all that sort of thing. Um, but the, the fact remains is they are interested in the well-being of your cat or dog, and they will do their best within the limitations of the price and things like that to feed your uh, a complete and balanced diet. So if it says complete and balanced, then that's the way to go. The other reason is because they're doing research. So the only people really who are doing research on requirements are the bigger companies. Um, and um, I'd like to, I actually would like a cent to be put on every, um, every bag of dog food and cat food um, to pay for research to be done independently of those companies. But the fact remains is that's the system that we have at the moment. And as a consequence, the people who are trying to move the envelope on uh, the amount of nutrients that need to be in diet are usually the people who are making the pet foods. And, and so um, without their expertise and they are funding us to do some people like myself and a few other people around the are trying to do independent research but it's often funded by those companies yeah now are the larger companies less likely to have incidents in which their foods for some reason or other contamination perhaps uh, injure pets or make them sick well, the danger with larger companies is there's more pets being fed by those diets. Therefore, if they do make a mistake, it's going to be a bigger mistake. If you see what I mean, yes. affecting more animals. Um, our hope is because they are um, doing more testing and things like that, that they would spot it in advance. There have been some examples in the past of um, foods that have a, where many companies have been involved. But that is usually because many companies, often of different companies, make the same mistake, if you see what I mean. Um, the, by and large, if you look at the number of recalls that occur in um, pet foods, there's about the same in a year that occur in human pet foods in a month. So there's, on the whole, there's fewer. Um, but because many animals are often affected at the same time, the, the, the effect can be quite dramatic. Um, I think big companies are doing more testing, so there's potentially um, uh, a lower risk for them to get into trouble. But if they, they're dependent, for example, on their the people who are making the um, vitamin mineral mixes that they're putting in. And if somebody makes a mistake, then their foods will have to be recalled. Um, but if they're testing sufficiently, they might, they hopefully will pick it up. Yeah, um, and, and sure. And by testing, you mean that they sample these ingredients and uh, pr you know process them and analyze them and make sure that they meet uh, safety standards, that they have the quantities of 
X mineral or vitamin or something that they claim that they have so that they know that they're putting out a balanced product. Yes, indeed. And they they can't test every every can of pet food, but they they're testing. It's more a question of how many te- how many cans they're testing relative to how many they produce and things like that. But any company can make a mistake, and some of the biggest companies make mistakes. And I know of one company that has spent a fortune trying to work out where the mistake was. We still don't know where the mistake was. So yeah, um, uh, for for pet owners who for whatever reason, would prefer that their animals eat a food that's sourced in the United States. Is that even possible? Most of the foods, I would yes, you can look and see where the, the, the food is made, but the trouble is some of the ingredients won't be sourced. Um, so that there is more tracking. The legislation has ensured that there's more tracking of where the ingredients come from. But some of the ingredients would definitely be coming from outside the United States. So that some vitamins, for example, are only being made in China or something like that, and then you're stuck. Um, you don't have another source. Yeah, and why, why is it that some ingredients um, are sourced overseas? I think I don't know the answer to that. I uh I suspect it's money. Yeah. For the same reason you get a battery from overseas or something like that, it's probably to do with the... Well, it's it's also... I, I can tell you that, for example, certain drugs, you can. Uh, there's a drug that we use in veterinary medicine that's no longer used in, in, in people. The, uh, there's only one factory in India that makes it, and that's because we've, the veterinary community is so enthusiastic about this drug that that's, we've actually asked that company to, to continue making that drug. Um, and if that company stops making it, then we have a shortage. Uh, you know? yeah. and so, so it's more a question of some things are easy. Some things are easier to to make if you're in one place. And if it's there's enough demand, then more than one place would make it. But it, it's competition, you know. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, so for folks who are trying to make uh, good choices and are tempted by some of the marketing, what would you say? Because a, a lot of this boils down to, I think, marketing, right? Yeah, well, if they they're mar- don't pay attention to the marketing is what I would say. Look at it, say, is it complete and balanced? And does it fit? my particular lifestyle, life choices, and then we'll go from there. Now, there are some things like people get excited about the latest thing is uh, grain-free or not grain-free. Um, and um, what happened was the, I think, really, we got asked a while back about whether there was a maximum amount of carbohydrate that should be in foods and things like that and how you would do it. And, and the, the experts basically sort of said we don't have a grounding for determining how much would be a, a too much or too little. And so we can't actually – they wanted – the perfect companies want us to come up with some ruling about what is – very little carbohydrate in the diet so the clients could see that. And there's no physiological basis for worrying about that. So we can't actually make a cutoff, you know. Um, And so 
the, the, the companies wanted an alternative, so they came up with grain as being a potential bad thing, as being a substitute for carbohydrate. And the, the idea, again, that dogs and cats are carnivores and they shouldn't be eating grain. Well, grain contains a lot of starch, and that's the main purpose of putting it in the diet. It's a source of calories. It's an inexpensive source of calories. And starch is very well digested by dogs and cats um, up to a certain amount. And uh, they, uh, it's a way of providing inexpensive calories to a dog or cat. And they, most dogs and cats don't get diabetes. Um, the main reason dogs and cats get diabetes is if they get fat. And ironically, you're more likely to get fat if you eat, certainly in cats, if you eat more fat. So if you eat more fat and less carbohydrate, then you're more likely to get fat. And you're more likely to get diabetes. Yeah. So you're, that's not carbohydrate is not as bad as people necessarily want to make out. And then, so then you got the, well, we want to make it grain-free. So how do you make a cheap dog food, which is grain-free? Well, you put other things in which contain carbohydrate. So you give starch um, as protein. Uh, sorry, you get, I said that wrong. Starch is potatoes or sweet potatoes. Yeah. All right, or you put in a lot of pulses, um, so that's as a an alternative source. And pulses are things like um, lentils and peas and beans and things like that. And um, they contain some carbohydrate. Um, and if you mess around with the diet enough, then something sometimes something unexpected happens. All right, and then what happened is some of the diets which were being marketed in that degree as, as grain-free started causing a problem, and they, that was a problem with the heart. And so suddenly, grain-free becomes a bad disease, a bad thing. Well, you can make a perfectly reasonable grain-free diet, all right, um, without putting all those pulses and potatoes and all that stuff. If you put some meat in and put some uh, potatoes in a little bit, and you don't go overboard then you can probably make a perfectly good, you can certainly make a perfectly good grain-free diet. Um, it's just that you mustn't go, go too too far with the, the advertising and that sort of thing. So um, it's a great term for, for feeding an animal is moderation. You just don't go crazy in one direction or another. Yeah, uh, that is great advice. And this is where I think we should take our final break. And then when we come back, we'll have more with Dr. Richard Hill from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. This is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. My guest from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine this week is our good friend, Dr. Richard Hill. And we're talking about how to choose uh, good pet food for your pet. And uh, Dr. Hill, one of the things that people must ask you a lot is whether or not a pet needs to have a dry or a canned food, whether a canned food is necessarily 
better for a pet versus a dry food. Typically, canned foods are more expensive. They're more expensive per calorie, not per gram, right? Um, because they have a lot of water in. It's a bit like buying uh, Coca-Cola, if you see what I mean. You're buying a lot of water. Yes, okay? that's, so, that's true. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the, if you want to, if you, money is an issue, then it becomes more important that you feed a dry food. And it's about somewhere, it may be somewhere between three and four times maybe two to four times as expensive per calorie. And your, how much your animal is going to eat is determined by the calories. Um, and so, uh, and I'm just as bad. I go to the store and I sort of say, well, I don't buy it by the, gram, the amount of grams. I go and look at the back of it and say, well, how many calories am I going to get here? And is that a good use of my calories? You know. Um, uh, but then I'm a nutrition guy. So that, uh, yeah. the, the same applies to your dog or cat. Um, and the, but there are some situations where canned might be better than dry. Uh, if your cat is having trouble, is making stones in its urinary tract, uh, is having trouble with its urination, then giving a canned diet would be a good idea. Um, there is much talk about whether canned or dry makes you more prone to being obese. Um, and the data says that it does not matter. All right? Really? Yeah. Uh, and, and um, is there an under? I mean, was there was there a suspicion that one or the other was more likely to cause obesity? Well, there the, uh, there was some point. There was one study which pointed towards dry, making you more likely to be um, obese. And the theory was that it had more carbs in it, and that that was making them more obese. All right, and that because it's more energy dense, you put. Um, you know, it looks as it, you have a tendency to maybe feed more. Um, well, um, the, the subsequent studies have not borne that out. In fact, one study said if you give a mixture, that that's the best solution, um, but uh, of canned and dry. And if you give canned only or dry only, then it doesn't matter. Okay. There's some talk about. Um, people always wonder: Is are my teeth, are the cat's teeth, going to be better um, if I give dry food because it's crunchy and it maybe does a flossing action? And the available data we have is there is a difference if you feed exclusively dry food versus exclusively canned food. That study was done in New Zealand where they had colonies of cats, some of which only ate canned and some of which only ate dry. And the teeth were better in the ones that exclusively ate dry food. But when the ones that ate a mixture, there was no difference. And so that's an example where dry would be better, but it has to be exclusive. Yeah. Uh, um, there, there, the fact remains is that canned food tends to have a bit more um, fat, but it also is bigger in volume. And so it, part of it may be that how much the owner looks at giving an animal. 
And if you give an, a dry food, you need to remember that it's four times as calorie dense as the dry food. And so you give a, less, a, a much smaller volume and the, it's, some of it may be partly the owner because we know that if you feed a dog in a smaller bowl, the owners tend to put out less food and the, and the thing that counts for obesity is the calories. And so if you put out less calories, you're less likely to get an obese animal. If you put out more calories and the animal eats it all, then you're more, it's more likely to get fat. And so the only way to really determine whether your animal becomes fat or thin is to adjust the amount of calories. And I would advocate to the people listening, if you're really going to get on top of this, go to Target um, and buy a cheap digital kitchen scale um, and weigh all the food. And that's the best way of adjusting the amount of calories that an animal needs because a little, one little um, kibble is rather like eating a Mars bar to a small animal. Oh wow! And so you need to, you need to, you need to know that just a small difference over over years can make a massive difference. Mm -hmm. And so you need to, your best way of doing it is to weigh the food. And if you really want to, if your cat, if your feet. The best, cheapest, easiest way of feeding an animal is a dry food. Then you can always add water to that dry food before you feed it. Um, and the, you can get the same amount of water as in a canned food by putting, for each cup of dry food, you add two cups of water and you let it soak. But you need to remember, once you've wetted that dry food, you can't leave it out for more than a day or it'll go moldy. Yeah. Yeah, so right. You need to right. be careful. And and this is something we've discussed before. Um, in, you know, in storage, I've I've found that you know it, it's easier for me to store dry food uh, than it is cans because well, my cat's not going to eat maybe the whole can in one thing, and then I got to like you know, put it in the fridge or whatever I got to do, and then it becomes a whole a whole whole chore. Yes, and the the new guidelines will actually help you with that because they'll be for the new pet label will actually have storage and recommendations about that. So, um, but it's especially important to be careful with that if you're using fresh food or raw food or you know I'm not a bit I'm not a fan of raw food anyway because I think it's a health risk to you and the animal that you're feeding. But um, you need to be particularly careful if it's fresh food about how you store it because bugs grow uh, if there's a lot of water in the food. Dry food is a lot easier, as you said. It's, it, it's designed to – basically the lack of water keeps, keeps the bugs away. And finally, uh, for anybody who's contemplating uh, a switch – uh, maybe don't do it suddenly. Maybe don't just go from the dry food to the canned food or the canned food straight to the dry food all in one afternoon. No, absolutely. I couldn't emphasize enough. Usually if you're going from a, a, a less digestible to a more digestible food, then it you can make the change over in about a week. But if you're going the other way to a more uh, less digestible food, um, you need to give the bugs in the colon, in the large intestine, time to adjust. And that may take a month. 
Yeah. Uh, well, you know, Dr. Richard Hill, it's always a pleasure having you on the program. I, I think the listeners get a good deal of information, and I think it's very helpful, especially when talking about something that I think a lot of us, you know, maybe we take for granted. Uh, you know, feeding our pets is it's something we do every day, and we maybe don't think a lot about it. And then some people think an awful lot about it. And uh, some of us are susceptible to believing marketing, and there's a whole a host of issues. Uh, but having advice from a veterinarian is maybe the best thing that people can do. So thank you for uh, for being on the show again. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk to people. I want to say thank you also to Sarah Carey and Amanda Buckley over at the UF College of Veterinary Medicine for their help with the program. And to all of you for listening, I'm Dana Hill. I hope you'll join me next time for another episode of Animal Airwaves Live. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.